Humans are storytellers. During our species time on Earth, countless myths have been born, endless legends spun. Folk tales, fables, and fairy tales are among the most enduring examples of our capacity for storytelling. In the distant future, when humanity has established itself firmly as an interplanetary species, what tales might have emerged along the way? What stories might Martian settlers tell each other during long, cold nights on the Red Planet? What myths might arise as humans spread across the solar system and eventually reach for the stars? This is Space Age Folk Tales. In the previous episodes of this season, we have explored tales from worlds across the solar system. In this episode, we will be jumping a little further into the future to explore a story from the era of humankind's interstellar colonization. In the year 2679, an interstellar crew set off for Barnard's Star, a red dwarf located about six light-years from Earth and named after the astronomer E.E. E. Barnard. They were not the first crew to go interstellar, but they were the first crew to visit that particular star. Uncrewed probes had discovered a planet orbiting the star that appeared shockingly hospitable for humans. Although more uncrewed probes could have been sent to confirm this, a series of unlikely events and political moves led to a human-crewed flyby-and-return mission being ordered by a coalition of nations. Similar flybys around stars like Proxima Centauri had already been performed, so there was precedent, but the circumstances surrounding the Barnard star flyby were a bit unusual. The flyby came at a cost. Even with technology that was more efficient and powerful than anything humans had dreamed of in the early days of solar system exploration, it was a 50-year round trip for the astronauts, and a little longer for those awaiting them back on Earth thanks to relativity. Cryonic technology kept them in what amounted to an induced coma and slowed their aging, and the ship's powerful onboard AI sustained their bodies as necessary. But when they left Earth, they all knew that when they returned, their home planet would likely look quite different. Much would have changed, and many people they knew would be dead. Nonetheless, they went, blasting off to the orbital complex where their interstellar ship stood fully assembled and then they ventured off into the cosmos to investigate the planet around Barnard's star that some were already suggesting could serve as a second Earth. Although the astronauts' personal bravery is often lauded, the mission to Barnard's star has been widely criticized for being pointless and senseless, and not for no reason. Fifty-some years later, the astronauts returned empty-handed. There was nothing for humans on the imagined second Earth, they reported first over radio, and then in person when they finally made it back to Earth. The exoplanet, which had been officially named Koyos after a Greek titan who represented intelligence and inquiry, was dead and barren, and the atmosphere wasn't breathable or hospitable for humans after all. There was widespread outrage at the fact that world governments wasted money on a human-crewed mission before sending more uncrewed probes to Barnard's star, to assess the accuracy of the initial promising readings. Beyond that, 
there were also many conspiracy theories about the mission. Underground forums on the solar web speculated that the astronauts had indeed found something on Koyos, such as life or a surface suitable for human colonization, but had been forced to cover it up for one reason or another. Many stories, wild theories, and purported leaks along those lines emerged in the aftermath of the mostly ineffectual mission. One written in the year 2745, which we are about to read today, claimed that the astronauts landed on Koyos and found something there that ultimately forced them to keep their mouths shut about what they had experienced, and claimed that the exoplanet wasn't worth colonizing. Of course, the official story from the authorities has it that the astronauts never landed on Koyos. Their mission was merely a flyby, and they did not slow down enough for their vessel to enter orbit around the planet. On top of that, their ship was not equipped with a lander. When they returned to Earth, they hitched a ride on a lander from the orbital complex where the ship had been constructed. For those reasons, the story we are about to read cannot possibly be factual. Or maybe, that's just what the government wants you to think. This is the story of what really happened at Barnard's Star, author unknown. Believe it or not, I know the truth about what happened to the crew of the Amalthea and it is not what the government claims. I am hiding my identity by sending this message through several secure proxy servers around the solar system, as I am sure I would be imprisoned or worse in an instant if the government discovered who is writing this. But I am a government employee on Earth who is close to the situation, and is aware of what the crew told the United Space Coalition in confidence. I won't say exactly how close I am to the inner circle, or who exactly I work for, because I don't want any agents to pinpoint my identity, but I know for a fact that the story I'm about to tell you is the same story the astronauts told the higher-ups. You can make up your own mind about it, whether I'm lying, whether the astronauts are lying for some reason, but I need to get the truth out into the solar system so people can at least make up their own minds about it. I don't know if any non-terrestrial governments know about this. I doubt it. But what I do know is that this is a conspiracy of multiple Earth governments, and I can't stand by while they hide the truth from the people. Let me start from as near the beginning as possible. The story I know picks up right after the crew came out of cryosleep while they were nearing Koyos. Commander Walton was under orders to slow the ship into orbit if initial readings appeared to warrant a landing. This part of the mission was not made public before or after. For those who don't know the background of the mission, unmanned probes had already confirmed potential habitable characteristics of the planet, such as an abundance of gases humans need to breathe, and the presence of water, including oceans smaller than Earth's but still sizable. But those elements were not enough for scientists to claim definitively that the planet was habitable or semi-habitable for humans. Additionally, the probes found no real signs of life on the planet. Its continents did not appear to be covered with vast swaths of foliage as Earth's are. The dark, silent oceans did not give up their secrets to the probes as they sailed overhead. They were able to gather radar readings and estimate the water's depth in some places, but they could not carry out a thorough search for life there. Follow-up missions without humans might have been a smart way to search for more evidence of life or habitability. But 60 years ago or so, a few politicians needed a win, so they threw together a crewed mission and sent it off into the void. 
That's a different story, though. You can search for more information about that on your own if you're interested. The point is, Commander Walton had orders to place the Amalthea into orbit around Koyos, unless the small committee of onboard scientists agreed that there was nothing down there worth investigating. The probability of them reaching such a conclusion was always slim, and indeed, they did not. Readings taken from the Amalthea as it approached the planet confirmed what the probes had discovered and seemed to bolster the evidence in favor of Koyos being a planet that humans could settle on quite easily. It didn't appear perfect, but it seemed far more hospitable to human life than any world in the solar system besides Earth, or indeed any exoplanet within a few light years of Earth. Taking the science team's advice into consideration, Walton made the call to perform a colossal slowdown and bring the ship into orbit around the planet. A small lander hidden in the floor of the ship's main cargo bay was deployed, and a team of four was sent to the surface. Maybe you already know the crew members' names, or maybe not. There were over two dozen astronauts on the Amalthea, so I cannot blame you if you don't know them by heart. The four who traveled to the surface were Commander Trevor Walton, Lieutenant Pavonis Blue, Engineer Bakhti Owenson, and Biologist Clifton Brewer. Yes, the one who's been in the news so much recently. He talks a lot, but he's never said a word about this little adventure, and that's not for no reason. You may have seen the images returned from the mission. They show huge gray and brown expanses of rock peppered with lakes of water and set in between Koyos' oceans. In one of those images, you can see something strange near the eastern shoreline on one of the planet's northern continents. It's an anomaly that looks far too rectangular to be natural, almost like an artificial structure. The United Space Coalition briefly addressed the anomaly after speculation about it on the solar web reached its apoapsis, admitting that it looked strange but claiming that its shape was perfectly explainable as the result of natural processes and was likely only a mountain. You can look the image up and see it for yourself. It became quite popular for some time after it was first sent back to Earth. To my eye, it looks like an artificial structure that has been worn down by time but still retains evidence of intelligently constructed lines and angles. You can make your own decision about what it is. In any case, when the astronauts aboard the Amalthea spotted the structure, they knew it was more than an odd-looking mountain. Its location also conveniently suited their scientific objectives as it was right near the ocean, so landing beside it would allow them to examine both land and sea. The lander descended and set down about half a mile away from the structure. When they disembarked, they wore their spacesuits to be safe, but data gathered on the surface confirmed suspicions that had been raised by readings from orbit. Although the mixture of gases on Koyos isn't quite right for humans, it has atmospheric pressure comparable to that of Earth, and its air is not dangerous to be in contact with. The crew could have worn face masks with oxygen tanks attached, along with perhaps some heavy winter gear, and they would have been fine. In such close proximity to the structure, it became immediately obvious to all four members of the landing party that it was something extraordinary. It was coated in dust and eroded in places, but it was undeniably something artificial, with a cuboid shape, sharp corners, straight lines, and a dull gray color that suggested it was built from some kind of metal. 
An array of strange bumps adorned the walls, and a huge, dark aperture in its side was clearly visible, even from the place the lander touched down. As I heard it, there was some debate among the crew regarding whether or not they should go visit the thing and attempt to discover its secrets, as there was no guarantee it would be safe. But they were all explorers at heart, so it did not take long for their worries to be cast aside in favor of the spirit of curiosity and adventure. Some may call it brave that they chose to venture into the heart of a mysterious alien structure about which they knew next to nothing. Some may call it foolhardy. Whichever one it is, I wish that they would apply their bravery and foolhardiness to the public arena here on Earth, and speak out about what they experienced. I suppose I am a bit of a hypocrite when it comes to the matter of speaking out boldly, as I have obviously not attached my name to this account, but I believe the public would be much more receptive to the astronauts if they were to recount the truth, and I wish they would defy their governments and speak up so that everyone could know what really happened. As it stands, though, you will have to hear it from me. The crew members made up their minds to visit the structure, and they trekked across the barren rocky landscape, abandoning for the moment all their other scientific goals. It did not take them long to reach the huge, cave-like opening in the structure, and they cautiously entered it, turning on their headlamps and probably wishing they had brought weapons. I did not hear a very specific description of what exactly the place looked like on the inside, but I know it was large and cavernous and dark, and the tunnel got narrower very quickly as they moved deeper inside. As they walked, they began to notice simple pictographs drawn on the walls with something apparently akin to ink. The images were mostly incomprehensible to them, but there were a few they were able to decipher such as what appeared to be depictions of Koyos and its single small moon. There were also drawings of what appeared to be living creatures of some sort. Crude sketches of things with what appeared to be long necks and six limbs, four of which they seemingly used to walk. Some of the drawings seemed to show the creatures having fallen into limp positions. They walked for a couple minutes before reaching a huge round chamber. From what I hear, the astronauts seemed especially disturbed when recounting this part. In the center of the chamber, they found what appeared to be skeletons in the process of crumbling into dust, along with scraps of a sleek, thin, metal-like substance scattered on top of them. Not much of their anatomy was still distinguishable. They had clearly been there for a very, very long time. The crew believed they were members of the species depicted on the walls, the ones with six limbs and long necks. There were also apparently a few different artifacts scattered among the dead, tools and such, I assume, that I did not hear a detailed description of. There were more pictographs drawn on the metallic walls of the chamber, most of them much larger than the ones that had been in the hallway. As with the smaller pictographs, many meant nothing to the crew, but some seemed understandable. There were depictions of what seemed to be tall structures with clouds drifting through them, six-limbed beings frolicking beneath them. There were more images of Koyos and its moon, one of which showed the beans standing within some object that was described to me as semi-trapezoidal and rested on the surface of the moon. There were other planets depicted on the walls, too. One image showed an array of circles surrounding a larger circle which the astronauts took to be a representation of Barnard's star in the planets orbiting it. 
smaller versions of the semi-trapezoidal shape could be seen scattered around this diagram. The arrangement of the drawings on the wall seemed random. If there was an order to them, the astronauts could not figure it out, but they did not seem to be chronologically placed from left to right, right to left, or anything of the sort. After some studying, though, they came up with what they thought was a sensible order based on the drawings they could understand. The next drawings, in the series they thought they discerned, showed something new arriving at Koyos and its moon. A fleet of triangles with other beings inside them. These beings had wide, flat heads like hammers, and what seemed to be hulking bodies with four limbs. Unlike the six-limbed creatures, they looked bipedal. Some distance behind them was a larger circle with a nearly identical drawing just above it. The astronauts took this to mean they had come from some other celestial body, likely another star, judging by its size. Another image showed a wave of some sort emanating from the triangles, heading toward Koyos, and below it was another pictograph of the tall structures that pierced the clouds, but now some had fallen over, and the mysterious wave was visible in the sky. Some of the six-limbed creatures who had been frolicking beneath the structures had now fallen over, and others appeared to be fleeing in terror. One other pictograph seemed to show the very structure the astronauts were in, with a few of the six-limbed beings huddled within it. Above the structure was a huge array of circles, big and small, ranging from oblong to perfectly round, and above nearly every one of them was a small triangle with a tiny hammer-headed creature inside. The image that the astronauts believed to be the final one in the series, except for perhaps one of those that they could not decipher, showed dozens of circles overwhelmed by one giant wave from a triangle fleet, and far below them, the six-limbed beans inside the metal structure now lay lifeless. The astronauts were, of course, shocked and horrified upon seeing these pictographs, and their inescapable meaning. I am told that they searched for any other doorways or openings in the chamber, but found nothing, and that they collected some samples from the room before leaving, including fragments of bone and even a few artifacts, which I am told were brought back to Earth and are now likely hidden away in some secret storage facility. After the astronauts left the structure, they searched its perimeter for any other openings, but found nothing on the outside either. They spent a few more hours on the planet's surface, gathering data, before lifting off and returning to the Amalthea. One of my sources told me that they initially did not share what they had found with the rest of the crew, but it became impossible to hide as they began composing their report to Earth before returning to cryosleep. It only took six years for the report to make it back to Earth, but everything pertaining to the structure and the lost civilization it suggested was immediately buried, and an official narrative, complete with fabricated data, was developed that claimed Koyos had been found to be totally hostile to human life and was not worth revisiting. When the Amalthea eventually re-entered our system and its crew awoke once more, one of the first transmissions they received was a secure message on a private channel, updating the crew on the official story and instructing them not to breathe a word about what they had really discovered. I am told the crew members were thoroughly blackmailed and threatened before they had even set foot on Earth again, and to this day, none of them have cracked and revealed the truth. As I said, I wish they would defy their overlords and speak out to inform humanity of all they encountered, 
but I suppose it's difficult to blame them for bowing to the threats of the United Space Coalition. The truth of the Amalthea's mission to Barnard's star is certainly dreadful, but I cannot, in good conscience, conceal it from the public simply to preserve people's worldviews and senses of security, which I assume is the main reason the United Space Coalition has gone to such lengths to cover it up. The fact that we, living on a planet so close to Barnard's star, have not yet received a visit from the hammer-headed creatures that seemingly wiped out all life on Koyos may suggest that we are safe somehow, that they have chosen not to come after us for an unknown reason. On the other hand, maybe we are not safe. Maybe there is some threshold we have yet to cross to be noticed or viewed as a threat by those creatures. Maybe, if our technology continues to advance and we continue to plant the flag of Earth on the planets of other stars, we will find ourselves hearing from them eventually. Whatever the case, we cannot afford to live ignorant and unprepared. Please spread this message and let the nations of the United Space Coalition know that the truth is already out there, and that we will accept no less than total acknowledgement of what really happened at Barnard's Star. Well, that's the end of the first season of Space Age Folktales. Thanks so much for listening. So far, we've heard stories about a fairy on Mars, anthropomorphic planets, alien abductions, and more. But there is still so much to discover. We haven't even visited the frigid plains of Europa yet, nor the scorched surface of Venus, nor the distant moons of Uranus and Neptune. Space Age folktales will return to explore more myths and legends from across the solar system. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode of Space Age Folktales, please leave a rating and a review, and be sure to check out our social media accounts, which are linked in the description. Also be sure to check the description to see where I got the sound effects and music I used in this episode. Until next time, thanks again!